Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and this is a B-side episode. But before we get to that, I have a few really important announcements to get off here. Pretty big deals. First, the normal shit, which is just please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to podcasts. Those ratings really, really help us, especially if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe I'll get back to reading some of them on air at some point soon when they stop triggering me when I see one bad one. But other than that, I really appreciate everyone's really kind, nice reviews. And please keep leaving them for us. I really appreciate that. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. So as some of you might have heard in our bonus episode that dropped Tuesday, we just launched our new Patreon. It is called Pop Pantheon All Access And it's a really big deal. It's something that Russ and I have been working on for a long time. We've been scheming, just trying to make this the most amazing thing that we could possibly for the listeners of the show. And I'm so excited with what we've come up with. And just to give you a quick little background on what it is, basically there's two tiers, of course, on this Patreon that you can join. One is the icon tier, and that's where you're going to get for $5 a month, all of the perks and the most important meat of what this Patreon is about, which is bonus podcast episodes. I mean, we're a podcast. That's why you tune in for this. So we're giving you more of what you love, but with some fun little twists on it that I think will make it a dynamic addition to what Pop Pantheon main feed is. Obviously, goes without saying, nothing is changing about this main feed. Everything is going to be exactly how it is. New episode for free every week. So if this is not of interest to you or you don't want to get involved in the Patreon, nothing will change at all. That is all good. If you are interested in joining the Patreon at the icon tier for $5 a month, you're going to get at least one bonus episode of this show per month. And we're going to talk about stuff on there that is related to the Pantheon, but with some interesting twists, I guess. So some of those twists are that we're going to use that as a space to get into a lot of new music conversations. When new albums come out, when new singles come out, a lot of those conversations are going to be happening on the Patreon. I view Pop Pantheon main feed as mainly a music history and commentary show. We look at artists' careers in retrospect and try to make sense of them with the power of hindsight. And that's what we're doing for the majority of Pop Pantheon episodes on this main feed. And I have so many opinions, thoughts, conversations I'd like to have about new music, about music by artists artists that we haven't ranked in the Pantheon yet. That's another thing we steer clear from on main feed is doing episodes on, let's say, a new album by Harry Styles or someone that we haven't yet covered on the show. The bets are off on the Patreon. We're going to talk about new music when it comes out. Even artists that we haven't ranked in the show, we're going to talk about them there. So that's going to be happening on Patreon. We're also going to be doing really fun retrospective lookbacks and deep dives into albums or songs or eras from specific artists that we feel merit some interesting attention or more attention than they've gotten on the show or for artists, again, that we haven't featured yet on the show. We're going to do lookbacks at big albums that we all love or a song that feels important and spend an hour and a half or an hour talking about that song or whatever it is. We're going to do things where we can really spread out there on our Patreon. And also we're going to include some more personal content from me about my life, my DJ career, making the show, etc. So at least one bonus episode per month. If you sign up now, there are three episodes there already that represent some of the different things that you might be getting from this Patreon. We're going to be experimenting. We're going to be taking feedback from patrons about what you guys like, what you want more of, what we could be trying, etc. But these are three episodes that we felt like represent the different sectors of what we want to cover on the show or some of the different sectors we want to cover on the show to give you a taste. So right now, there's an episode up with Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos, big fan of Pop Pantheon, who was on our Destiny's Child episode. She was on our One Direction episode. She's been on our Grammys episode about Taylor Swift's reputation. And it's me and Brittany for about an hour and 15 minutes just digging into reputation, talking about it from all different angles, talking about why it's misunderstood, talking about why it was ill-received in its moment and why it deserves a reassessment. We talk about nearly every song on the album in some form of depth. We talk about how the narratives around Taylor Swift have changed and affected how this album was received versus her new record, which 
which kind of dabbles in some of the same ideas as Reputation, but seems to be coming into a public more receptive to them. Anyway, we get into lots of different angles about it. Brittany's obviously a wealth of knowledge on Taylor. She is literally teaches a class on her at NYU. So it was such a fun episode and it's up there on Patreon right now. And as a little treat slash teaser slash enticement, at the end of this episode, after the song plays at the end of the episode, I am going to include a short clip from the Britney Spanos Reputation episode for you guys to just get a little bit of a taste of what's going on over there on our Patreon. So stay tuned after the episode wraps, after the song, to hear a clip from that episode. The next episode we have out now is a new music speed round of sorts with Russ and I, where Russ and I go through about 10 new releases by artists from Rihanna to Lizzo, to Sam Smith, Kim Petras, Rina Sawayama, Tuve Lu, and on and on and on. And we talk about their new music and we talk about how we're feeling about it, what's good, what's not, what's working for us. And then we play a game that Russ came up with called Step Up, Step Down, where we go through new music events or news and we see how it might be affecting a certain pop star's ranking in the pop pantheon. For instance, we talk about Rihanna's Super Bowl announcement and whether that could potentially affect her pop pantheon ranking. And we do that with a series of other things. So that's the second episode. And then the third episode is a intimate kind of chill conversation with my sister, who is my best friend and my partner in pop for many years. We grew up listening to music together and she airs me out for my Justin Timberlake standum, which I I guess I didn't sufficiently lay out in the episode about him during my teen years. I air her out for crying at a Lady Gaga concert, whatever. We just have a fun little conversation about some of our great pop memories together. And it's just a cute little thing. So those are the three episodes that are up there now. As I mentioned, again, there will be at least one new one every single month. So that's the main feature. The other things you're going to be getting on this Patreon are, if you sign up at the icon tier at the $5 level, is access Access to the Discord server. Again, as we said in the announcement, if you are already in the Discord server, you will not lose access to the Discord server whether or not you join the Patreon. If you're in there, you are in there for good. However, if you now want to access the Discord channel uh, and you're a new user, that's going to be something you get via Patreon. You will also be privy to early merch drops. We have a new Patreon-only Mirror Superstar Pink Tea, which is a very cute, if I do say so myself, that's available exclusively on Patreon. You will have access to the guest list at Gorgeous Gorgeous, my queer pop party. If you're ever in LA and you want to come to the party, it's usually a ticketed event, but for patrons, you will be able to get in touch and let me know and be guest listed for that party. And you will also have access to exclusive patron-only album listening parties, virtual listening parties, where we're going to flag certain big pop releases and gather there on Thursday night slash Friday morning when the albums come out and listen to the albums together and talk about them together in the Discord channel, which I'm really looking forward to. It's going to be so fun. And finally, you're going to be able to have meaningful input on the content of Pop Pantheon. So patrons who sign up are going to be able to partake in forums and polls, and we're still figuring out exactly how this is going to work, but you are going to be able to provide input that we are going to take very seriously about who you you'd like to see featured on the show and what artists you want us to cover, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what you get for $5 a month in the icon tier. And if you don't want to shell out $5 a month and you still want to support us, there is the niche legend tier, everybody's favorite pop pantheon tier, where for $2 a month, you'll get discord access, early merch drops, and the opportunity to provide some input on the show. Again, if you do not want to do this and you just want to continue to listen to the one episode for free per week, that is so fine. But if you're in into this and you want more, even more Pop Pantheon in your life, this is a great place to go. And I'm so excited for what we're doing there. And this is a completely independently produced show. It always has been since it launched about 18, 19 months ago. It's just been me and then me and Russ. And we really appreciate if you would like to help support independent podcasting. We won't say no. The way to sign up for Patreon is to go to patreon.com slash Pop Pantheon, or you can click the link in the show notes, or you can click the link in our social media bios and in our Instagram story right now. So lots of different ways to get in there. Patreon.com slash pop pantheon. So that's my spiel on the Patreon. I hope you'll join and I'll see a bunch of you over there, I'm hoping. 
This week's B-side is an episode I've really wanted to do for a long time, and it's about stan culture. Now, it's something we talk about colloquially on the show all the time, and of course, I think many people who listen to this podcast might refer to themselves as stans, jokingly, whatever. This is about the more hardcore version of the word standing. This culture on the internet, or should I say largely on the internet, where... Large groups of super fans of pop stars essentially wrap their identities fully around a pop figure in an almost kind of cult-like way. And there's a lot of positive aspects to this, which we get into. There's a lot of scary and toxic elements to this. One of the reasons I was inspired to do this is because there's been a lot of recent events where journalists or fans or just people online have been doxxed and threatened for merely sharing thoughtful opinions about pop stars. And I weirdly feel that despite how prevalent this word has become or how much the idea of standing has infiltrated our pop culture and online culture, it still feels like some that we don't talk nearly enough about in a serious way and it needs to be talked about in that way and I felt like I both have a responsibility as a content producer about pop music and also I just think I'm interested in what this is why standing has become such a huge thing why do people want to wrap their identities around a pop star to the extent that they will attack other people online to the extent that they'll shell out tons of money to buy albums numerous times in order to get chart positions for their star of choice what's driving this what's it like what does it mean to stan and no one better to talk to about that than new york times pop music reporter joe coscarelli who is just a brilliant guy he was on our selena gomez episode one of my all-time favorites and obviously is a integral part of the new york times podcast podcast so i invited joe back on the podcast he's also written about standing and we just get into a wide-ranging conversation about what standing is, what's good about it, what's kind of scary and dark about it. And I'm just glad we had an opportunity to shine a light on something that I'm fascinated by and I think is a pretty critical part of pop music culture in the internet age. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Joe Coscarelli. Okay, so I am here with... Joe Coscarelli. Joe, welcome back to Pop Pantheon. Thank you for having me. This is always an honor. (laughs) The honor is all ours. And I just want to say before we get into this, we're not really talking about the subject of your book today, but you did just release your new book, Rap Capital, and I'm so excited to read it. So I know a lot of listeners are fans of podcasts and fans of your writing at the time. So I just wanted to make sure we got a plug in up top for Rap Capital. Everyone should check that out. I really appreciate it. And I do, I think we need to get into at some point in this conversation, the rap standum, because I think it's Mm. a different thing, but why be better? Uh, We need to (laughs) remind me to talk about that at some point. I'll remind you to talk about it. And I think it's relevant even in the inception of the concept because the word Stan arises from a rap song, actually. So I find that to be an interesting sort of twist in this whole story is that the concept of standing seems to occupy most obvious space in the pop star world but right and divas specifically divas specifically but it's, it does originate with a a diva in and of himself i <laughs> i know you probably hear this every day but i'm your biggest fan i even got the underground shit that you did with scam i got a room full of your posters and your pictures man i like the shit you did with rockets too that shit was bad anyways i hope you get this man hit me back just the chat truly yours your biggest fan this is stan Part of the reason that I wanted to do this and wanted to do this with you is that I think there's two versions of standing that have emerged as colloquialisms. I mean, we use the word so much on the show casually and me as a pop fan and as a person who operates and exists in like the gay community, the word stand gets thrown around a lot as like a casual colloquialism for being a fan of an artist. But I think what we're more here to talk about today is more like the real meaning of the word, the sort of culture of standing that exists when people really devote their lives and form their identities around a 
musician and specifically a pop star, but also obviously a rappers, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to approach this with like some amount of delicacy because I find myself having a temptation sometimes, especially when I see things like, for instance, your colleague, John Caramonica wrote a review of Midnight's this week and got death threats on Twitter. And I know he's used to that happening and he's like, probably, I'm, you know, we don't have to get into his, however he deals with that in his personal life. But yeah, it's one of those things where it disturbs me. I guess there's elements of this culture as someone that's like very interested and engaged in pop music and wants that to be like a healthy space for us to like have a good time and I find this to be something that increasingly or too often sort of infects this world in a negative way and the thing that really tipped the scales for me is there's a listener to the show and I don't know if she wants me to name her but she's a public facing person who recently had you know made some fairly benign comments about Nicki Minaj on her YouTube channel and like got doxxed and had her family members threatened and truly scary stuff and is like now in a lawsuit with them. So I just thought it would be smart for us as a podcast that is exploring the world of pop stardom to address this. Cause I weirdly think, although people kind of get what this is, it's still not something that's talked about nearly enough because it's a huge part of pop stardom. It's a huge part of online pop culture. So that's, I just wanted to put that out there originally as like, I want to be able to dig into this, you know, with respect for the fact that like, I don't want to like look down upon people that do devote their lives to standing somebody and to sort of see some of the positive aspects of community. And I think there's a queer element to it that's really important and shouldn't be neglected in terms of people finding community with other like-minded individuals and maybe using that for forces that make them feel less alone and using that for good. But I do think that this also has a lot of troubling aspects to it that are both related to pop music and related to maybe bigger issues in our culture. And that's kind of like how I want to frame the conversation more or less. Great. No, I think that's completely right. I think that there is the benevolent side of standum. There's a colloquial side of standum. And then there is, like you're saying, the dangerous and obsessive and the side that I think people where they fail to differentiate between what happens online and what happens in real life without fully acknowledging that so much of real life now takes place online. Right. And I think that that gets into something that I also am interested in maybe trying to get at with you. I mean, neither of us are clinical psychologists, but like there's a part of me or sociologists, let's also say that. But there's a part of me that finds myself wanting to understand on a deeper level how people get into this parasocial relationship with these people where they're willing to put so much on the line. I mean, this is more than just like, I love Mariah Carey's music. Mm -hmm. You know, this is more than I will go see every Mariah Carey tour. These are people that are on the whole, not people of like serious means who are willing to throw lots of money, buy albums 20 times on iTunes, basically like spend much of their resources on people that are largely billion millionaires and sometimes even billionaires. So that's fascinating. And people that do not know who they are. And it comes back, I guess, to them in their minds through the idea that they're being gifted with art that they seem like really resonates with them, Mm -hmm. which is understandable. But the idea of sort of forming your identity around somebody that you don't know and that isn't you. I don't know. There's just something really fascinating to me about that. And like, why does that happen? And are there ways that that has happened in the past that isn't around pop stardom? Is this filling a vacuum that religion is filled at one point? Like there's just elements that I'd be interested in. Maybe we can circle back to this at the end of the conversation about why this phenomenon is becoming so increasingly widespread where people are forming their identities around this parasocial relationship. So that's another thing that I'm just really interested in poking at. Definitely. And I think that it's been interesting to watch it continue to grow and continue to take over parts of the cultural and political sphere. Because I wrote this big story at the end of 2020 about standum. Yeah. And we called it how pop music fandom became sports, politics, religion, and all-out war. And I thought even at that moment that we were sort of late. Karen Gans, my editor, bless her, pushed me to write this as my big year-end piece. Right. And, you know, there are elements of stand culture that go back 20, 50 years. So you think of even more. You think of Beatlemania. You think of Elvis. You think of Star Trek and the Grateful Dead and Prince Mm -hmm. and these early, 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 early fan communities. And then fast forward to the Beehive and the Navy and Nicki Minaj and Little Monsters, Gaga fans. That even more than a decade ago at this point, we were talking about those things a lot. And yet it doesn't end and it keeps metastasizing 
polarizing in these very strange ways. And I think, you know, you, you even saw it with politics and with Bernie Sanders, with right. Donald Trump, with right. Hillary, with Pete Buttigieg, you know, has yeah. stands like <laughs> this is like this is this is like this is everywhere. And I think you're right. It comes from pop music as so much does. So many yeah. advances in, in culture and technology you can see first in pop music. But this mm. is really the whole world is now made up of standums in a way that is both thrilling and scary. Agree. So you were just starting to get at this, but where does sort of like the super fandom of your Beatlemania, girls fainting over Frank Sinatra, all the way through, as you were mentioning, like Star Wars and Star Trek and like these ideas, like where does that shift in your mind into the modern conception of standing? And what are the differences, do you think, like just in broad strokes? You know, in this piece, I spoke to a couple academics who study this stuff full time. And I think the difference is really the internet and then having the internet in your pocket. Because Mm. fan communities used to be seen as basement dwellers. They were seen as people who went to sci-fi conferences. You know, there were mailing lists, newsletters, things that happened in isolation and in private and that were considered sort of shameful. You (laughs) you know, you had you had you had girls fainting on the news around Elvis or the Beatles or Frank Sinatra. And even they were seen as hysterical in some way. Right, totally. And then as technology catches up, then all of a sudden it's it's Usenet groups, it's Mm. message boards, it's Mm -hmm. official and unofficial websites where people are trading bootlegs and it's Mm -hmm. still very person to person you had to opt in in some Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. but i really see the shift come in the sort of like one two punch of myspace and american idol like these Mm. things are happening in the full view of everyone else and you've also decimated the line between the artist and the fan because the fan now feels like they are catching the attention of the artists themselves. Right. You know, you're, right. you're friends yes. with your artists. Mm. You can see your vote for them or your follow, your play mm. count. Like as soon as analytics take over yeah. in a public way. And then you add to that having 24-7 access to the internet and or once it's on our phones, then this is your everyday life. And I think the other place to really draw the line with music in particular, and again, I learned this researching this piece, you know, I've been writing about stands now for probably six, seven years as I've been covering music primarily. I wrote in college even about fandoms and fan fiction and those sorts of communities, again, which were sort of happening in the shadows. But the difference between... Between like a Star Wars or a Star Trek, those are referred to often as narrative fandoms. Right. You know, you Marvel, the DC people, the Snyder Cut, you know, people people (laughs) like that. But that to me is a bit more diffuse because these are people who are obsessed with universes, fictional universes, Harry Mm, Potter. mm, mm, You know, there's 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 a lot of different places you can put your enthusiasm, whereas music fans are often investing in a single individual. And that is where I think you see the crossover with someone like Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Mm. You're now putting your identity into one human. Right. Like right. The, it's cult like in that way. It's exactly. Quote yeah. there's a quote in this piece from one of these people who studies this stuff and they said when people are passionate about something to the point where they're identifying with it mm-hmm. and it becomes who they are, whether it's a political party, a political person, or a celebrity, they're going to fight. Because all of a sudden, anything that happens to those people is personal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting, I think, the American Idol connection, because one element of this that I was sort of poking at earlier is this idea that you are there as like a promotional arm or you're like taking an active role in the commercial success of these things, which Mm -hmm. is one of the more intriguing elements of this is that, as you mentioned in your piece, as this has become more sports-like, for instance, there's this whole element of like, okay, you you pointed this out also in your piece. You said in the past, right, earlier iterations of fan groups, the competition was about, you have a quote in there from somebody where the competition was like, how many times have you seen Radiohead or whatever it or was? Fish. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, how right, many bootlegs fish. do you have? Right. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was enthusiasm for the work. Whereas this feels like it's turned into more of like a hive mind community that's a promotional wing of these things, which makes it way more complicated, I think, in the dynamic between the idol and the Stan army, because at this point, they're actually being 
utilized in ways that like both the army itself is probably like coming up with on their own and probably I'd imagine that the record labels and the stars themselves are probably strategizing on ways Definitely. to utilize these groups to like juice their numbers to sell tours out it's not just about like I love Taylor Swift's music and it like resonates so deeply with me it's like it is important to me for some reason for Taylor Swift to sell 1.5 million records this week and like that is so important to me that I'm willing to put hundreds of dollars of my money into that when this woman is sitting on you know half a billion dollars like I just find that to be a really differentiating factor between like how fan communities operated when like they're just like I think Rock Hudson is hot and I want his autograph to like this you know what I mean it's so different yeah I trace that back so the American Idol connection is something that Karen Yens put in my head she was my editor again she was a big idol person and that's her theory my personal theory is that I think the first real generation of online stands we came up at the peak at the CD boom and also the teen pop boom and I think when you think back to that moment I was probably 10 years old when NSYNC and Backstreet Boys were happening but there was a real one or the other it was you were a Backstreet Boys person or you were an NSYNC person (laughs) you were a Britney person or you were a Christina person God forbid you were a a Mandy Moore or a a Jessica person (laughs) or a Willa person or a a 98 Degrees person (laughs) Um, I remember those face offs that's when I learned what record Mm. sales were which was who's going to sell a million Mm. copies this week Mm. and then even after that when you think of something like the 50 Cent Kanye West face-off. I think that that is a really pivotal moment where Mm -hmm. it became artists and labels realized that they could exploit this competition among fans and make you feel like you were winning if they were Mm. winning in the similar way to sports. Mm. I'm a Yankees fan. I I don't get anything out of the Yankees winning, but since (laughs) I was a kid, I've invested myself personally in this idea that if they win, I win. You think of people saying we (laughs) about their sports teams. And then I think this is a really human impulse. But that's more explicitly a game. You know, that's the thing that's so different about this. Like, this is art. It's different. Like, you know what I mean? And I get pop music is also commerce. So like maybe that's a game on some level. But the Yankees game is a game. Someone wins, someone loses. Like we didn't used to think about pop music necessarily on those terms. But I think the subjectivity of art lends itself to this shift because – you can say Beyonce is better than Ariana Grande, and I can say, no, Ariana is better than Beyonce, and right. there's no deciding factor. But mm. when I can say your fave flopped, that's yeah. definite. Like that, the, because there is so little to grasp onto right. in art in terms right. of what's better, what's right. subjective. It's subjective. The numbers are the thing. And as Mm. the world has become more analytics and gamified and Spotify plays, YouTube views, think about Mm -hmm. YouTube as always shown you right there, MySpace, how many friends you have, you know, how many plays you have, who's in your top five, who's in your top eight, you know, and this is about the attention economy. This is Zuckerberg's curse. This is, I'm going to show you how many people love you. So you're just constantly fighting to get more. And I think as these things have been shoved in our face, We've seen kids, people our age, you know, 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. older millennials, young mm-hmm. Gen X people learn that. But then beneath us, the young millennials, the Gen Z and beyond, like this is all they know. And yeah. so it's a constant fight. It's war. I think the other part of that that's really elemental to standum is the idea that your person needs defending. Like there's this feeling of everybody as the underdog. Like I, that's something I notice a lot, which is like obviously so funny when you're thinking about someone like Taylor Swift or you're thinking about someone like Nicki Minaj, someone who has been so incredibly successful on a level mm-hmm. that like most people can't even fathom the level mm-hmm. of success this person has. But there's this idea that I think maybe Maybe the inflection point for, or maybe not the inflection point, but maybe the first big expression of this was Chris Crocker's Leave Britney Alone video feels like a mm. really important turning point where like mm-hmm. there was this idea that this person is under siege and it is my responsibility as somebody that like loves and identifies with her as an artist to like defend her honor. And I feel like that feels like a huge part of how these communities form. <laughs> And how fucking dare anyone out there make fun of Brittany after all she's been through. She lost her aunt. She went through a divorce. She had two fucking kids. Her husband turned out to be a user, a cheater, and now she's going through a custody battle. All you people care about is readers and making money off of her. She's a human!
What you don't realize is that Britney's making you all this money and all you do is write a bunch of crap about her. She hasn't performed on stage in years. Her song is called Give Me More for a Reason because all you people want is more, 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 more! Leave her alone! You're lucky she even performed for you bastards! Leave Britney alone! The way that people are attacking John, for instance, for his Midnight's review is this feeling that, like, he's got a vendetta against Taylor and... Which is absurd. It's absurd. But I'm saying it's like they need to defend Taylor. Like, Taylor yeah. is in need of their defense, which is a fascinating concept. As I mentioned, if you pull back, you're dealing with some of the most privileged and resourced human beings on the planet Earth who really do not need the defense of a 16-year-old person on Twitter. And, yet and not only are. privileged, but also successful. Like, most like, yeah, people exactly. like this <laughs> like you know yeah. like yeah. but i think that that's another current in culture that we've seen really go haywire currents can't go haywire it's a bad metaphor but go just <laughs> the, like things go fucking nuts right. which is grievance culture and mm -hmm. because as you're describing all of this i'm thinking about donald trump and i'm totally. thinking about fox news mm -hmm. and people realize that if you make an audience feel like they and the people that they love and identify with are constantly under threat by somebody right. who wants to undermine or end their way of life, right. then they're going to be ready to take up arms. And yeah. artists exploit this grievance culture. The labels do it. The fans do it to each other. Mm -hmm. But when you think of somebody like Taylor Swift, who is not an underdog in any sense. But also loves to posit herself as one, just as like a performance As technique. many yeah. pop stars yeah. do. If you see the fans sort of play on that, yeah. they have to identify an enemy. We ran a piece this week in the Times about Metacritic and how important this has become right. to them. Again, because it's a objective, they consider it an objective measure, even though right. somebody at Metacritic is deciding what the number is. I know, I was like, noticing in John's reply, sorry, I don't mean to keep bringing him up yeah, in no, absentia, no, but like they true. kept it's going great... like 50%. I was like, he didn't right. give that 50%. He didn't give it a 50 Somebody yeah, else right. made that number up. Right. I did this rant on our Taylor Swift podcast, which, yeah. you know, will probably be out by the time this episode is. Yeah. If anything, the people who are actually hurting Taylor Swift's artistic legacy are the people who are knee-jerk saying this is a classic, having listened to it once or twice. Serious artists deserve serious analysis and criticism. And of course. In the long run, the people who are harming Taylor Swift are the people saying she can do no wrong. Not the Absolutely. people taking her seriously and taking each of her bodies of work on their own terms, totally without factoring in outside pressures. You see this in fine art, you see this in film. What makes people important, what makes people part of the canon is people engaging with their work and yeah. debating it and criticizing it and Absolutely. pushing them in different directions. Like It is necessary to write a review of the Taylor Swift album that is not a five star review i mean we could have an entirely other podcast about the way that standing has infected music criticism because i mean mm -hmm. the fact that john's review is one of maybe two that were even like at all critical of this in any sort of meaningful way is very notable to me i mean without i we will also have a taylor swift episode out by the time this comes out so my opinions on the album will be out there at that point but like that is insane to me that there are 30 some odd reviews aggregated or whatever on metacritic and and there's really only a couple that seem to have any sort of objective criticism going on because it's And like, even this morning, Quinn Moreland wrote a, for Pitchfork, yes. it's a 7.0. It's yeah. a very positive review mm -hmm. and the fans are still pissed. And it's not yeah. all the fans. It's just the most vocal fans. I think well, we should note that like, about yes. stands is in the same way as with politics. Bernie bros were not every Bernie Sanders voter. They were just the ones that were the most vocal and the most visible. But that matters too because those people then become representative of the fan base. Absolutely. And I think that that gets into another fascinating element of this is, which is like, what is the role that the artist at the top of this is playing? Because I think that's a really dynamic situation. And I'm curious what you think about that and like how that's evolved. So like some things that pop into my mind as a sort of formative is like Lady Gaga named the little monsters. Like, mm -hmm. and that felt like a big stand moment. I mean, as someone who was like a fan of hers during her peak era. Is it, is it fun to you to know that there's like so many people co that call themselves little monsters? Monsters. Yeah. I love it. Is that fascinating to think that, like, did you come up with this phrase or was it fan-made? Well, I wrote The Fame Monster, right. okay. which uh, was the second album. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when Bad Romance came out, uh, we did this choreography with these claws. Mm -hmm. And then uh, The Monster Ball, which was something that I just named it The Monster Ball because of the name of the album, which was The Fame Monster. And I thought it was a 
cool title. Which it is. Uh, so it is. I went to the show, and the fans were so excited to hear Bad Romance the whole show that the entire show, they would just go like this, and they would hold up their paws, which is what we call them now. Mm-hmm. But uh, back then, uh, it was, you know, the video was just coming out, and it was, the you know, Bad Romance wasn't even number one yet. It was just still growing. Uh, so I they would be screaming at me with these paws in the air, and I just finally just said, oh, you little monsters. It just yeah, evolved. There was this big moment, and I think this also ties in another element that I want to talk about, which is the queerness part of this, because I do think that not all stands are queer, but many, many are. And I do think some of that underdog nature, that feeling of defensiveness, can be linked back to a feeling of a personal identification with that idea that like you've been under threat and you found this person that makes you feel seen for the person you are and Lady Gaga really represents this because she so explicitly sticks up for queer fans and identifies with them and sees that as a huge part of her sort of like ethos as an artist. I think there is this kind of feeling of like community forming with other queer people and also this idea that you too are an underdog who's had to defend yourself and there here's somebody that is extending a hand to you like from above and they're being attacked and so you feel galvanized to sort of like come to their defense. I'm not saying that all stands are queer and I really want to make sure that I say that but I do feel like there's an interlap here between queer culture and stan culture and especially because a lot of these kids are young queer people. People that really are still trying to find their identities and they're sort of finding it in these communities and under these guises. I guess what I want to ask you is like what roles do you see those artists playing in the other direction? Like do they try to temper these things? Do they exploit them? Is it different artist to artist? Do the fan bases reflect the general energy of their artists? That's an interesting theory. And I think that the answer is both and all of it. I think there are the artists that really have stoked these fan communities Mm -hmm. and that's made them huge. Someone like Lady Gaga and the Mm -hmm. the Little Monsters. And then there's someone like Beyonce. It's very hard to find Beyonce saying the word beehive. Yes, it's happened like exactly one time. I I think it's happened one time or there's one instance of it that I could find on, on YouTube. It's hard to find Beyonce saying much of anything, period, that's, ever. That's so. <laughs> true. Fair. But someone like that, I think their aloofness, that only makes people want to get acknowledged more. Right. And then there is the Gagas or the Taylors. The way that Taylor has ultimately galvanized and then arguably weaponized the Swifties mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. the years. Taylor Swift used to do something called Swiftmas, where she would send some of her super fans gifts. Oh my God! It's so big! Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god, 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 it says my name. Oh my gosh, there's a card! Show it to us. His shirt, he keeps his word. And for once, you let go of your fears and your ghosts. She started doing something called the Secret Sessions, where she would pluck people from Twitter or especially Tumblr, which is where a lot of the Swifties have congregated over the Mm -hmm. years. And she would invite them to her home to hear the album early. This is really amazing grassroots marketing. Yeah. But it also has this, you know, arguably this exploitative quality to it where she's saying, buy more of my stuff. And then there's someone like Nicki Minaj, right? Right. That's the elephant in the room. I feel like like we're scared to say the barbs (laughs) are the the barbs are the scariest. Some of the most notorious fans. You see her riling them up. You Mm -hmm. see her responding to them, favoriting their tweets, deleting the tweet, unfaving. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. She really knows how to whip them into a frenzy. And for yeah. someone who is so interested in beefing. Yes. And it's Trumpian in her grievance politics. I mean, she yes. reminds me of Trump in so many ways in terms of the way that she is constantly framing herself as everybody's against her. It's never her. It's always something that's being done to her in every single instance all the time, on record and off. And the way the fans relate to that and take part in it, she can mobilize them in. Yeah. You talk about what responsibility these artists have. There's always this question of should the artist jump in, right? When a critic right. is getting doxxed yes. or a fan is being harassed. Yes. Think of, you know, Lizzo and the Uber Eats driver or whatever it was. Absolutely. And then also Lana herself going after Ann Powers is another one that I was thinking of recently. Among others. And you almost never see the artist say, hey, guys 
take a break. Like, don't Which is do fascinating this. from all of these pop divas who preach like love and kindness. I mean, it's like the literal cliche of modern pop stardom is like, hey, we're like an open-hearted community. I mean, that's the Gaga ethos. And I think she's better than others at trying to keep the vibes positive, but whatever. Anyway. I ahead. think much more often than you see them calling off the dogs, yeah. they're sicking the dogs. Yes. And game recognized game. Like when it works, it really works. Taylor writing the open letter to Scooter about the masters and yeah, basically right. telling her fans like go tell this private equity company like go tell an investment bank how you feel about this is essentially what she said which is like the mobilization there the grassroots whipping of votes like it's just like it's really impressive and insane okay but attacking a private equity firm <laughs> and the most powerful music manager in the industry is different than going of after course. like someone with 15 twitter followers or even going after of a course like that's funny right. to me swifty's going after Scooter Braun, like, who gives a fuck about that? I mean, obviously, nobody should, like, threaten violence on him or, like, call, you know, and none of that. But in terms of just, like, being dicks to him <laughs> online or whatever, like, like who cares? Yeah. Like, Scooter Braun is, like, equally as privileged as Taylor Swift. It's more the way that these things can reverberate and they, like, Nicki Minaj will sick her fans on a YouTuber or some, or a critic mm -hmm. or just a person online and they're willing to, like, as you said, dox right. them, threaten them with violence. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And not to mention that Nicki Nikki's not doing any of it. Like, Nikki is shielded from legal drama, from whatever the consequences are. Meanwhile, these people with zero power in her stand base are putting themselves in, like, immense legal jeopardy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which, like, is just so crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, about. one of the biggest examples, I think, I wrote about this in 2018, but was this woman, Juana Thompson, who tweeted about Nikki Minaj, not even adding her, and talking about the art itself. I think her original tweet was, yeah. like, do you know how dope it would be if Nikki put out mature content no oh, silly I remember shit this. I remember yeah. This. yeah yeah and then all of a mm -hmm. sudden this woman's life was not only threatened but ruined in some way she lost yeah. jobs right. people were sending her pictures of her small child and just really really scary stuff and i think ultimately the consequences for standum even in these big kerfuffles like most people are fine this is not a selena or mark david chapman situation in most cases right. we haven't seen right. a journalist i don't think like it's a lot of bluster and it's a lot of much it's a lot of bluster yeah, right. but it sucks and it ruins people's it's lives scary. and it it's and it scary. takes up a lot of it takes up a lot of energy and time to confront these things i do want to talk about the flip side which is a community yes. and the love that comes out of standom like let's do that and to get back to your point about queerness like i can't speak to yeah. that personally and i'm more interested sure. in your view on that but i've yeah. interviewed artists especially think of someone like lil nas x who came up as a barb as mm -hmm. a Nicki minaj stand and whatever power and creativity he found in that world that he has now been able to give back a hundredfold you know whether or not you like lil nas x beside the point yeah. I think inarguable that he learned some of his best tricks, his marketing, his sense of humor, his ability to foster community. I assume yeah. from that. And then someone like mm -hmm. Ethel Kane, who I wrote about this year, yes. you know, this young woman, Hayden, grew up homeschooled in the Deep South in a religious family as a trans woman, having a really hard time, not allowed to listen to secular music, not really allowed online. And when she found Florence and the Machine from the soundtrack from the Kristen Stewart Snow White movie, like she mm -hmm. felt like a portal had been opened into some alternate universe where she could be mm -hmm. herself and mm. be an artist and it changed the course of her life to be able to make friends in the Florence Welch stand community and that has led to art. Here's a question with Ethel Kane and with Little Nas X that led them to becoming their own person who's making <laughs> right. art and putting it in the world. That's valuable of yep. course and that's existed for a long time. Yes. There's so many times inspiration. I mean I know what this is like I'm huge fans of so many people that inspire me all the time I look I'm look up to them I'm a fan of theirs and then it makes me go like how can I get a little of what they're doing mm -hmm. that's amazing mm -hmm. I think where this gets a little dissonant is like for every Ethel Kane there's <laughs> a million other people where it doesn't get to that place and it's literally just I log into my computer in the morning and I stan Nicki Minaj mm -hmm. and like that's the extent of it the mm -hmm. friendship element I want to say that's mutuals. Good. Like I, yeah, I, they call them mutuals. Absolutely, and like we have a Discord channel, and it is like my favorite thing is that all these people that are obsessed with this, and they're not Stanny. I mean, they're big fans, and they love talking about it, but they find each other and they talk all day, and like that is the best shit ever. Yeah, like, community. I, I, it's I real community. It. It's amazing. Real community. That's great, but that's somehow like different to me than the banding together to either like 
become promo wings for an artist or banding together to become online terrorists for mm -hmm. an artist. Like mm -hmm. those, those feel like separate ideas to me in a way. Yeah, but I think they overlap. And I think just to come right. back to the point about promotion, you think of a group like ARMY, like BTS. Right, right. And I wrote about this in this piece and a lot of people have written about this over the years. They literally put out guides of how to best stream songs. And right. this is another part where I have to tip my cap. Because they know yes. how Spotify works. They know how deep into a song you have to listen. They know when it'll get flagged as bot activity. They really figure this stuff out. They know what counts on the charts, whether it's buying a song on iTunes, which is a quick way to juice stats, or Chris Brown's fans are really into this, circulating streaming guides for how to uh -huh. how to best game billboard and spotify like i see this with most major releases like they're fucking organized and they they're are like organized shit works. and i wish let's figure out how to harness this stuff for good like i don't know yeah, what the like when bts doxed donald trump or whatever yeah, or like, they, not they, doxed, they but like did something pretended them, like, like they were they... going to fill the rally and then it right. ended up being empty i think you know that's like a semi-apocryphal story like it, i don't know yeah. how much they really had to do with that rally being empty but you know they raised right. money but then there's the flip side where they're preaching positivity they're preaching progressive values and then if you so much as write a snide aside in a blog post they'll be in your mentions for six right. months so i don't know what to do with any of this but i do think that it is everywhere it is viewed so far beyond pop standum it's all of american and inter international online culture the people who have stan armies official and not i mean donald trump jr has a stan army people who are public figures who aren't even even doing anything <laughs> like, right right like, right it's scary it's scary but it is real and i don't think you could put the toothpaste back in the tube on some of this stuff one thing I'm, i'd be interested to hear you talk about is the idea of like so this has become such a huge part of pop stardom right with standing and having a stand army it's like it's hand in hand at this point with having a pop career kind of big or small because mm -hmm. there's certainly stand armies out there for kim petrus and charlie xcx and, oh i love it I, lo I love i love sad stand army it's like <laughs> that's the, they're more fun yeah because those girlies are underdogs so like in a way like it kind of adds up more and there's than, like, some self-deprecation yeah, yeah there's some exactly. self-deprecation right. where they know you know they they know like we yeah. are not charting but we're gonna we're gonna try like hell <laughs> There's nothing way more charming about that than like standing Taylor Swift. But anyway, I'm curious, like, do you feel like Stan Arminess, everything we've been talking about has affected the artistic output of artists? Like, does this stuff factor in to how artists' actual discographies and careers are unfolding in ways that are unique to this moment and this culture? I think the worst version of it is that the yes men that might have once surrounded you in a studio session are now in your ear all day, every day in your comments and on right. Instagram and in your DMs. Mm. And I think we've seen, I'm not going to name names here, but I think we've seen artists who needed a pivot long ago, who needed mm -hmm. to try something new, who needed to go back to the drawing board to switch something up, to pursue their own path, who are just blinded by the constant chorus of, mm. of approval or of disapproval. And I think it's just as often, you know, when a community turns on an artist, even their own fans, I think it's easy to say, oh, these are just crazy people online. I'm not going to listen to them in the same way that the other side of that coin, which is everybody's telling me I'm great and that I'm doing things perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I think either side of those, and this is a, a more extreme example of what everybody faces online. Like, if you're going to get validation from the people who are telling you you're great, then you also have to take seriously when they're telling you that you're a flop. So I, I you yeah. know, I, it's really intense, but I think that there's no way for artists who spend time online, which at this point is part of the job. And I think 99% of artists are, even when they say they're not, they're checking the comments. Yeah, they're all doing that, by the way. Never believe anybody that says they're not doing that. And I think there's no way that it's not touching and affecting the product, the output because it warps your brain i mean fame is a disease 100 percent, and i don't wish it upon anyone so I want to come back to something you brought up at the beginning, which is that you feel like there is this element going on. I mean, A, hard to separate 
rap culture from pop culture at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, all of these rappers are pop stars for all intents and purposes mm-hmm. at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. But how do you see this sort of manifesting itself in hip hop culture in ways that are similar or dissimilar to the way it goes on in pop culture? There's a lot of the competition aspect and mm-hmm. some really amazing examples. I mentioned YB Better, which is the catchphrase used by NBA Youngboy fans. And mm-hmm. NBA Youngboy has one of the most fascinating careers in popular music and culture at the moment. He's a complete outsider. He puts out whatever music he wants, basically whenever he wants, with no concession to mainstream ideas about length or rollout or marketing. And he's one of the most popular artists in the world. He outstreams, insert a pop star that you think is really famous with zero radio play, zero television appearances. You know, he has a major label, but they don't back him. But but it's all fan enthusiasm. It's, you know, there's snippet culture with rappers, trading of bootlegs in in a fish and Grateful Dead way, you know, songs by Youngboy, by Chief Keef, by Playboy Cardi. So like the fan enthusiasm, I think is incredible. On the flip side and where rap differs from pop music is that there are real lives on the line in some of these scenarios. Right, right, And you're talking about street rappers with professed gang affiliations. Mm. And now you see Stan armies rooting for shootings. Mm. There are dark corners of Reddit and Instagram that are dedicated to treating gangs like sports teams and Mm. go into the comments of someone like a Lil Durk who has lost people extremely close to him. And you have fans saying, slide for Vaughn, slide for Vaughn, which means go shoot somebody who shot somebody you love. And that is like, that. I can't think of anything more dystopian than that. That's terrifying. You know, in a way though, I kind of, as you're talking, feel like rap culture is, as usual, on the ball with certain things that have then moved into pop culture. Because mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I grew up, you know, in the 90s during the kind of the golden era, quote unquote, of New York hip hop, like in New York, whatever. And there was always more of that sportsmanship, mm-hmm. gamesmanship. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was more kind of like open discussion of even in raps, like what numbers are you putting up? How yep. much is your record selling? Is this a classic? How do we decide if it's a classic? Let's yep. fight over which album is more of a classic. Is Ready to Die or Illmatic better? Yeah, competition is fundamental to hip-hop in a way that it was not always for pop music. Though, of course, you still had Beatles or Stones, Monkey, right. you know, you had these little rivalries, but you're right. And I think that that's because it's competitive culture. It's battles, you know, yeah. and it's more openly capitalist, right? It's about conquering and making right. as much money as possible because of its roots. Which feels like a new part of pop fandom. Like, of course, I remember growing up and everybody, the week that when NSYNC sold 2.3 million records in the first week, and that was a huge deal. But like, I don't remember my friends and I as young pop fans being like, absorbed in any meaningful way about the numbers Britney was putting up. Mm -hmm. Like, we knew about it. It was like, maybe we heard about it on TRL or whatever, but like, that wasn't like what we were concerned about. We were like, this music video, let's learn the choreography. Mm -hmm. Like, can't wait to go to Best Buy and like, get Oops, I Did It Again or whatever the fuck it was. Like, it was, we needed to save up to buy tickets to the tour. Like, we were not sitting here being like, well, Britney sold 1.1 million copies in the first week and Christina sold, you know, whatever. And then she dropped 60 spots on the Billboard 200. We had no fucking idea about that. But I think there is this stat thing. And I think in some ways it bleeds into interesting knowledge, which is that like another thing we weren't actively aware of that I think is really cool that people kind of are read into now is like album credits. Like Mm -hmm. like I, like at a certain Mm -hmm. point in my teens got interested in that, but that was like a thing I remember, like nobody knew like who produced Britney's music for the most part, unless like Pharrell happened to be on it or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. I think these things are linked and the knowledge of these pop fans like this is a separate conversation right. the how jack antonoff became such a character <laughs> in the universe of pop music or even max martin and dr luke like but you're Absolutely. right when these people were first around the whole point was their anonymity oh, because you wanted i think certain listeners to think that the music was coming only from right, the person from the delivering it right. the knowledgeable pop fan right now is like i've been saying like very 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 impressive but mm-hmm. also worrying and i hope that the obsession with the numbers and the credits and the right 
the money and the touring and the all of the business aspects like aren't taking away from their enjoyment of the music. Their enjoyment or their ability to interface with it using their minds. I mean, yeah. that's the thing that gets really tricky about it is like it's become so much about this gamesmanship, so much about the competition, so much about the blind defense of people mm -hmm. that it's like part of what makes being a fan of art fun, and I'm sure you'll agree because we've both like made this a huge part of our existences, is interfacing with these things, having opinions about them, mm -hmm. loving them because we want to like parse apart what works, what doesn't work. Like, why is this song connecting on, you know, this one not? Like, that's good. Like, that's positive. That's mm -hmm. like using your mind to like assess something. And it's like, what gets lost here is just when you feel like you have to just blindly defend something, I feel like we lose something very crucial to our culture which is the ability to like assess it to form opinions about it and to get into our own experiences of what works for us and what doesn't work for us and it becomes cult-like and it becomes hive mind mentality and that's scary not just with implications in the stupid world of pop stars and pop music but like as you've been drawing parallels to infects our politics infects geopolitics infects the future of our planet so there is terrifying connections here that are like as you said can so often and manifest in pop music at first, but like feel like they're indicative of larger problems that we have in culture and our society, generally speaking. I guess the silver lining to me and the thing that helps me sleep at night is that the internet is not really a place for nuance. No. In the same way that maybe you might fight with somebody online about whether positions is better than chromatica <laughs> and, 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 you're, and you end up telling them to fuck off and die on the internet. If yeah. you're sitting at a bar next to that person, I yeah. hope you're going to have a polite, fun, jovial conversation. No, everyone's you know, real tough behind their exactly. No like, question. And do, does that still go for politics these days? Maybe not. But you would imagine that there's more common ground, there's more nuance, there's more insight, there's more analysis happening when people are off their screen. So yeah. I never see stand culture manifest in negative ways at concerts, for instance. Like that, those right. still- so like, that's No, still, that's when stand armies are fun because yeah, you just the you're love in the room feel so infectious. There's still places of love, places of, of nuance. You might like one Harry Styles song more than another, but you're not going to punch the person sitting next to you at the show <laughs> for singing it, you know? So I hope that most of this is relegated to online. And right. as Tyler, the creator said, cyberbullying isn't real. Close your laptop. So, you know, like, <laughs> so I hope, I hope That's that continues to exist. And even if things reach this insane fever pitch on our screens, on our social networks, that in person we are still humans who know that not every Taylor Swift album is perfect. <laughs> One could argue none of them are. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I guess my last way to wrap this up is maybe on a lighthearted note. Is there a particular Stan army that you find delightful in a particular way? Like they all have certain aspects of unique culture. You were sort of getting into like how you find the Kim Petra Stan army to be fun. Like, is there a specific Stan base that you find delightful in a certain way that we haven't touched on? I mean, I just have a real soft spot for the Lana people. <laughs> You mean because she just keeps getting her hard drive stolen? Yeah, they just been through so much. She's so up and down um, emotionally, you know, the quality of her music. Like, she's done so many different things. Nobody can be pleased all the time. But I think they're yeah. really funny. I think the memes are incredible. Mm -hmm. I think the resilience is very special. And I think that she's just created her own planet. It's so cool that she was able to opt out of being an actual pop star yeah, like she right. never really right. reached any insane commercial heights except with no. some great gatsby remix you know like the, <laughs> like <laughs> and yet like they care so much i find them inspiring and then to get really deep like the stands that sort of hate their pop stars like i don't know how much you followed the release of this new caroline polachek video um but no. the, she she put out a flamenco inspired music video the memes are incredible i don't know if those people count as stands or just queer commentators with a lot of yeah. <laughs> with a lot of bite online but yeah. i i uh -huh. encourage you to try to spend yes. some time looking at the couple dozen memes that came they out after pissed. the release of the caroline polachek video they were pissed wait okay <laughs> i i i love the lot of plenty 
think it's a good point for us to end on because this is one aspect of stan culture that I actually think is good is it allows artists like Lana Del Rey to thrive, as you said, outside of the traditional confines of pop stardom. She doesn't need hit singles. She doesn't need to play certain games that like absolutely anybody who is aspiring to be a pop star would have had to have played in past ecosystems. Like these people can galvanize together. She can form this really rabid fan base on the internet that supports her making her weird Lana Del Rey music. And she still seems like a big pop star without needing to do any of the bullshit. And I'm glad that that exists. That's cool. That's like a good byproduct of this, perhaps. I agree. The fact that niche artists can be superstars in some sense is a really exciting part of this time in music. Okay, so I guess to go out, what's your favorite Lana Del Rey song that we could send the show out on? Oh, wow. Um, My favorite Lana Del Rey song. I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but because of Snow on the Beach, I've been thinking a lot about the Lana song High by the Beach, which, you know, I don't know if this is a cocaine (laughs) versus marijuana reference that Taylor and and Lana are playing with, but I I miss this Lana sometimes. I'm happy with folk Lana, but I miss this Lana Mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah, this is like semi-trap Lana, I guess. Yes, Um, exactly. All right, so let's go out on High by the Beach by Lana Del Rey. Joe Coscarelli, thank you so much for on the podcast and everyone go get rap capital in stores now get at your local bookstore (laughs) thanks for having me this was fun All right, so as promised, here is a little snippet of our Patreon bonus episode about Taylor Swift's reputation with Rolling Stones' Britney Spanos. I was just genuinely shocked at like how different it was because this is like genuinely the first time we have ever gotten love songs across an entire album from Taylor. Like this is like mm. the very first time in her career that she writes love songs that are not about fantasies or about mm. other people's love. Mm-hmm. On, on 1989, oh, the one love song on there was about Lena and Jack. Right, right. R.I.P. Right. And every other album, she wrote a love song about Ethel and Robert Kennedy. She wrote a right. song about like having a crush on the guy from Owl City, having a crush right. on Corey Monteith. Like she was like writing right. songs that were about crushes, that were about fantasies. But right. she had never written a love song that had the same emotional weight as like her breakup songs, or the tape. same level right. of detail, the same level of care and like kind of emotional tension to her love songs the way she'd ever written her breakup songs and that is the part that blew me away on this album is because for the very first time we were getting the (laughs) inverse of 1989 we're getting the happiest lyrics of taylor's entire career on Mm. like love and relationship and this companionship and the darkest sounding album that she's ever released and like yeah that is the funniest part about it because it's such the inverse or whatever of 1989 where it's like you know these are that's like one of her brightest sounding albums and then we have Mm, these like really slightly sexier for taylor type of lyrics well i mean i i was thinking that like delicate which is obviously like i think one of the most universally adored songs on this album Mm -hmm. which is like i kind of now think back on as like as i mentioned earlier like it's a little bit of a trop housey kind of song a little bit like it's sounds in that vein which was like a huge trend of that particular moment but that's one of the only times taylor has sounded convincingly sort of sexy in a you know that's not usually taylor's strong suit like you know style is sexy there's a few times where dress obviously on this record is another moment where she sort of like leans into sex and leads with sort of sex sexiness but delicate is one of the few times where you kind of get like that intimate feeling of like oh this is the first night that she's gonna like fuck this guy is it cool that I said all that? Is it too soon to do this yet? Cause I know that it's delicate. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? And I think the other thing that's really interesting that you're making me think of, because I had never framed it that way, that this is her first sort of like full-on love album, but this is now the first of what has become five albums about one relationship. So like for the girl that got pegged early on as like, hey, I date so many people and like you sort through my albums and try to figure out like which song is about which of the, you know, 20 guys that you that I've publicly dated, whatever. This album really is an album about the beginning of a relationship that's now gone on for what, six or seven years between her and Joe. And like, that is the meat of this album. Like that Mm -hmm. is the meat of this album. And I think what you're saying about the dissonance between 
the sort of darker toned production aesthetics and the brighter lyrics is that kind of like feeds what I think, as I mentioned earlier, is sort of the thesis of this album, which is that Mm -hmm. this love, this new love protected her from sort of like the darkness that was enveloping her from the outside. So like in a way, the production choices represent to me the feelings of the world and judgment of other people sort of encroaching upon her and the sort of, as you said, sort of the sweetness of the lyrics represent the sort of little candle in the darkness that I guess this relationship was for her in this time where she clearly felt under siege by the world if that makes sense my reputation's never been worse you must love me for me like that <laughs> the is the thesis like, of this album yeah. that is the thesis statement of this album they sing for the best my reputation's never been worse so you must like me for me you know, it's kind of funny with Midnight's too. Like, it seems like it's something that has continued to be like a, a sort of obsession with like how she talks about their totally. relationship. Is like totally you know, lover. Yeah, like when she says, "I'm a, I've been under scrutiny. You handle it beautifully." As a reputation yeah. lyric, and like lover, so much of lover is about the same thing. Like cruel mm-hmm. summer is like her detailing this 2016 summer of them getting this relationship off the ground at a point where she's like has to kind of live in secret, and it's like one of the like the darkest moments in her life. It's like a, a topic that comes up across all of these albums when she yes. talks about love and about Joe and about like the relationship is so much about the fact that they were able to grow and create this while she's not well received or liked she's like the most unpopular she had been in public mm-hmm. opinion at that point mm-hmm. and like this guy is like well you know like I'm fine with that like, <laughs> like yeah right and, 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 <laughs> like, and I, you know, I, I'm reminded as you talk about that a really touching scene in the Netflix documentary Miss mm-hmm. Americana where she basically is like kind of in like a dimly lit room in her home and the camera's on her and it's clearly being filmed by Joe and she's singing yes. him Call It What You Want which is one of my favorite beautiful Taylor kind of love songs My ever. castle crumbled overnight My castle crumbled overnight I brought a knife to a gunfight They took the crown but it's alright All the liars are calling me one Nobody's heard from me for months. I'm doing better than I ever was. So much the animating emotional force of this album for me. And I think that she renders it in so many interesting ways. Like, I love so many of the motifs that she adopts on this album. Like, first of all, some of my favorite things that happen on here are like, there's a true sense of experimentation that Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like, I guess Folklore and Evermore have this on some level because that felt like a journey outside of like what we had known her to be to that point. But like, this album is very adventurous in terms of how it presents Taylor on record. Like, Don't Blame Me, for instance, is something that's always stuck with Uh. me. Because perfect, it's, it's like a gospel song. It's like yeah. Taylor doing gospel aesthetics, but like laced with dubstep undertones. I really think it's so funny because you could sort of think of that song, Don't Blame Me, the title, as like sort of fitting into the anti-Kanye sort of anti-public narrative song. But that yeah. song perfectly encapsulates the bait and switch of reputation, which is And that. I did something bad too. Right, like exactly. Which are ultimately <laughs> about how in love she is with this guy. Like yeah. that's really what that song is about. It's not about anything to do with her public narrative or her reputation per se. They're yeah. ultimately about how fucking horny and in love she is with Joe Al. Yeah, that's just such a funny thing. Like this album does a really effective bait and switch in that way. If you want more of this episode and episodes like it, join our Patreon. The link for that is in the show notes and it's in our bios and on our stories on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. You can also go directly to patreon.com slash Pop Pantheon.